0: Today we're talking about the managing menopausal symptoms uh guideline. This is CGIN9, which has been recently revised uh and published in September 2020 by Ranscog. So this seems to be an amalgamation of the menopause uh guidelines that were uh, that were previously existing. So that was one which was called management of menopause, which this one is still called. But also there was c 16, which was about MHT, and c 15, which was about managing menopause after breast cancer. Uh, those, so those two are still currently under review, review but I suspect they will just be uh, withdrawn as this guideline seems to cover all of that now. So it's a lengthy guideline with, what, 23 recommendations, so we'll do our best to get through it in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, do you want to go over the plain language summary?
1: Sure. So uh for obstetric and gynecology registrars, often we don't deal with menopause an awful lot. It seems to be uh either it comes up in clinic when you're seeing a woman for another reason, um, or if it's a more complex case and occasionally um talking to GPs and GP registrars over the phone. But it is definitely something that all ONG uh trainees should have Um, confidence in discussing, and in particular knowing what the current recommendations are and being able to access the recommendations should it be necessary. So the menopause is a normal reproductive stage in which egg production and menstrual periods stop permanently. It most typically happens in the early 50s, but can occur earlier in certain populations. And we define menopause before the age of 45 as early and before the age of 40 as premature. 80% of women experience some symptoms at menopause which is usually hot flushes or night sweats and vaginal dryness. Often these don't need medical treatment but for around the 25% of women who have severe or prolonged symptoms they may require medical intervention. And for those who request treatment as in everything there are various options. So for menopause We categorize those as drug-free, non-hormonal, and hormonal treatments.
0: Thanks. So the first few recommendations are on basic uh, menopause symptoms and understanding, as well as an opportunity to um, improve basic health. So recommendation one, uh, women approaching menopause should be offered information and advice about normal menopausal changes and symptoms, and if required, have individualized discussion on the management options for troublesome symptoms so i think what this is just saying is that this is a normal healthy thing to occur and it's worth talking about as a doctor Uh, so just to be aware of it
1: and i think for women to know as well i mean the number of women who don't know that the menopause is their last menstrual period and that it is actually a retrospective diagnosis and that the perimenopause is a very normal and longer than you think period. In in your life, and yeah, so I think it's worth bringing up at those consultations in women's forties and fifties, just having the discussion so that the information, well, they know where to go to get information, really.
0: And it's surprising how tricky sometimes it is to actually arrive at the diagnosis. It's great <laughs> when you are truly postmenopausal. It's like you say it's actual. retrospective. Yeah. Um they do, do actually go into some of the definitions of about the perimenopause. One which was kind of new to me was a uh, marked or a persistent difference of at least seven days in length of consecutive cycles. So I think what they're saying is that if you had a twenty eight day cycle, if the next one's thirty-five and the next one's forty-two, <laughs> you're now oh. officially perimenopause. Mm, but mm uh is rare that anybody can give you that kind of detail and well, apps think...
1: are pretty good these days.
0: True, true. I don't know if biology <laughs> always follows those kinds of exact rules, but wouldn't that be nice? Um and then late menopause tra- so that's the early menopause transition and then the late menopause transition is when there's periods of amenorrhea of 60 days or more. And it's confusing when you're using the word period involved as well, but so <laughs> yeah so but yeah certainly irregular it's almost like PCOS so it's getting irregular and ovulatory cycles. Which is more obvious in a woman who's previously had regular cycles, but if they've always had irregular cycles, it can be quite challenging as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, if they've had a hysterectomy, it's can be very difficult.
1: Be very difficult. And interestingly, um, previous hysterectomy is associated with earlier age at menopause. I mean, clearly, if menopause is defined as your last menstrual period. That would make sense, but I think what they're referring to is cessation of ovulatory function as well.
0: Yeah, which is presumably related to some disruption of blood supply to the ovaries and Mm -hmm. perhaps some other more complicated factors. Um, So on to recommendation two. So this consultation, and again, they're talking about the hypothetical consultation about menopause, which I think is usually done by GPs, at least in the places we're used to working in. Um, Just before we started recording, we discussed that we'd both not done a lot of actual menopause consultations, um, but it something... makes us the right people to <laughs> yeah, be going through this guideline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is our responsibility to be knowledgeable about this information because we'll be the ones who get asked for advice uh, on the phone, and of course, it will come up during consultations for other uh, reasons. So this is an opportunity for routine health assessment, education, and primary prevention. So thinking about your screening programs, so breast and cervical, uh, bone density, which is of course becomes very relevant uh, as menopause occurs because bone mineral density starts to decrease significantly, um, and also at the same time assessing for cardiovascular risks because, again, this is you know going to be a very common cause of morbidity and mortality. So in the guideline it goes a little bit of goes into information about these things so we don't need to go over breast and cervical screening that's hopefully bread and butter Uh, bone density screening uh, it suggests the use of the frax app uh, or at least it's a website that's fairly easy to go to Um, it does have a field where you can put in the bone mineral density if you've had a DEXA scan but it doesn't require that and otherwise it's basically a family and personal history of uh, fractures as well as some other lifestyle um, things uh, I think as well as your height and weight. So if that conversation comes up um, which you know it should is basically what this guideline is saying then that's probably the place to go to is to bring that website up which is linked to in the guideline. Um, and try to plug in those numbers so that you can uh, determine that woman's fracture risk uh, and whether or not they should be doing something else to help with that. And I suppose, on that note, MHT is at least hormonal MHT, yeah, MHT is uh, helpful for managing bone mineral density, but that's not its, it shouldn't be used primarily for that reason. Hmm.
1: And I guess um, when talking about the consultation for a routine health assessment, um, again, in uh, secondary care, we don't often see people for routine assessments. And and like you say, it would be more in general practice. Um, But people, well, I guess it depends where you work, but people often don't necessarily just go for a routine health assessment and they may present with symptoms. Um, And what I found interesting um, in both this guideline and in watching a a webinar recently, was the varying symptoms across different ethnicities, in particular that joint symptoms may be more common in Asian women. Um, So it's worth having a knowledge of all the different symptoms that can arise at menopause, and we know the common ones being vasomotor, you know, hot flashes, night sweats, um, and genitourinary symptoms, um, but also the slightly more obscure symptoms like joint discomfort. Yeah,
0: so I think a good takeaway is that if you Got it, especially an asian woman who's got joint discomfort then maybe perhaps normalizing it as a part of menopause mm, would be mm. a reassuring thing
1: mm. and it does segue uh, reasonably nicely into recommendation three about affective disorders um, as symptoms of anxiety and depression are also uh, common in women and increase during the menopause transition um, and that can also be aggravated by things like sleep disturbance with Night sweats and things like that, um, and recommendation three just states that women with a history of affective disorders, those with premature or surgical menopause, or following a cancer diagnosis, may be at greater risk of developing anxiety or depressive disorders during menopause, and we should be considering mental health referral for these women.
0: Yeah, so menopause specifically is a is a risky time for mm. women with these existing risk factors uh, for this to uh, become a bit more out of control. So. Mm.
1: And I guess in particular for women who are used to being quite in control. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So the next ones go on to management of these symptoms. So as with most management things, lifestyle first. Uh, Mm. So recommendation four, women seeking relief from menopausal symptoms should also be offered advice on lifestyle changes, including stress reduction, which is always easy, uh, regular exercise, optimal weight management, appropriate diet and avoidance of smoking. Excessive alcohol and caffeine intake should also be addressed.
1: And I guess within that targeted uh treatment to specific symptoms. So um they have mentioned their sexual counselling should be considered for the woman either on her own or with a partner. I guess that's referring to um symptom like genitourinary urinary symptoms, and if there's discomfort with intercourse. Uh but I found it pays to Um, ask the woman you know say talk about sexual activity and they're oh no not for a couple of years you know husband's got diabetes or whatever oh do you mind oh no not that fast and i guess if that's everyone's feeling in in the relationship well then it doesn't matter so much but um yeah there are available targeted um treatments but also things like counseling cbt depending on Yeah, yeah depending on what you're looking at
0: and I think from my point of view, I see that statement like sexual counselling, and I think I'm not a sexual counsellor, but mm. actually I am to some degree. It just comes up from time to time. Mm. And I've often found that just having common sense conversations is you don't perhaps like Yeah, like I guess I don't have specific sexual counselling qualifications or expertise, but sometimes you might be the first person to ever even talk about it. Correct. Yeah. Um and that is often helpful. And once you've just gotten past that first awkward sentence or two, um often you know, you get quite a good bond and can have a conversation. And hopefully you just find out there's no issues at all. But I think sometimes it's good to just, you know, let the woman know that this is a safe space to talk about these things. And that even if I can't necessarily help, I can usually suggest a pathway to go down.
1: And I find it useful to uh, sort of a a fine balance, right, between normalizing, um, but also letting women know they don't have to put up with Symptoms. So, yes, this is extremely common, and I'm always shocked at how long it takes people to to seek advice about whatever it is. Um, And so, yeah, letting them know that whatever they're experiencing is actually really common and normal and just people don't often talk about it, but that there are options out there should they want to do anything about it.
0: All right, so recommendation five. The most common indication for the use of MHT is the alleviation of troublesome menopausal vasomotor symptoms. So this is the, the main, the basic thing, is that there are risks with hormonal therapy. So its use, is, its primary indication is troublesome vasomotor symptoms, not the other thing. So it potentially has advantages with bone mineral density and cardiovascular health at certain stages in your life. Um, but, and also, well, uh, yeah, when urinary incontinence, but its primary indication here is vasomotor symptoms for which it is the best treatment though as you've mentioned there are other um, treatments available.
1: So the decision to start um, and then the reassessment of using MHT depends on the symptoms you again I'd say usually but should be always vasomotor symptoms um, and, and the severity of them how much it impacts on the woman's ability to function and also the woman's own health background and, and whether or not things certain things are contraindicated or different methods of um, administration should be used. The dose should be titrated to symptom relief and side effects, um, but in general, start low, go slow, would you say?
0: Absolutely. So recommendation six, uh, women with premature less than 40 years or early, less than 45 years, menopause should be offered MHT until at least age 50, unless otherwise contraindicated. So I guess that is coming up to the other major uh, indication for uh, MHT, and that's for early menopause. Um, And that's often going to be related to chemo or radiotherapy, um, but may also be related just to uh, idiopathic uh, causes uh, or surgical causes. So from the cancer route, that kind of thing will often be initiated by a, an oncologist, um, but it's always important that we catch uh, that this is occurring um, for women who do go through menopause early.
1: They, they tend to suffer more severe symptoms um, and the I guess the repercussions of those symptoms may be greater. Yeah, yeah. and men. I think
0: the, the bone health is a mm. major component of that. Um, recommendation seven, commencement of MHT after the age of 60 is generally not recommended as benefits are less likely to outweigh risks. So you'd mentioned that generally when starting, start low and go slow is one one principle and another is generally to start around the time of menopause. So when the symptoms first occur and try to make some plan to wean that off over the next few years. But there's basically no absolute rules with this. And for the woman who's incredibly symptomatic, um, as long as you've counseled them on the potential risks, um, the benefits may well outweigh them for that person. So recommendation eight, uh, MHT should be considered for symptomatic women who have reduced bone density, but have not sustained a fracture. And I think we've covered that already.
1: Should be considered, not the primary indication. Yeah.
0: All right, so thromboembolic disease recommendation nine: oral MHT is contraindicated in women with a personal history of venous thromboembolism. So, I think to what this statement is based on is that transdermal MHT or at least the the so the estrogen component doesn't seem to be associated with increased VTE risk. So it's specifically about oral, and then. Unlike the COCP, it seems to be kind of what the risk is perhaps lower, or it's it's not like just based on having a family history. Or, mm. you Mark, know, it's you basically have you need to have had a personal history of VTE, and otherwise, you don't need to think about it too much. <laughs> would you say? And it's oral, <laughs> yeah. so in general, my practice is always to start transdermal anyway. Now that it's funded in New Zealand
1: yeah i mean i mean that's that's kind of it really there are other um options for administration and so they should be used yeah um but yeah i guess that would be one of the key tick boxes is is there a personal history of vte and then big x to for oral oral estrogen
0: um, and then just in terms of stroke, it mentions that there's also a slight increased risk of stroke for women over 60 or for women who are using it more than 10 years after menopause. Um, that stroke risk does slight it is more related to oral uh, estrogen, but it also exists with transdermal therapy, but only at doses higher than 50 micrograms. Mm. So often I think probably 50 is probably the most common dose. Um But yeah, slightly elevated stroke risk above that.
1: Start low, go slow. Start with (laughs) transdermal.
0: Yeah. The cardiovascular risk section, I think the simplest thing to say is that for some people it's beneficial and for some people it's higher risk. And it seems to be that it's probably beneficial in the most common times you'd use it. Um, But it was higher risk for older women um, from the original kind of uh, million women study.
1: And Women's Health Initiative, yeah. RCT. So, um, yeah, so that's, again, starting the MHT within 10 years of menopause and really thinking hard before starting it after the age of 60. Yeah. or And continuing it after the age of 60.
0: Yeah. So it gives us recommendations 10 and 11. It shouldn't be used for primary prevention of CBD. There's lots of other things you can do to improve cardiac health. And then uh, recommendation 11, uh, for women within 10 years of menopause, MHT doesn't seem to increase the risk of heart disease. So that's reassuring.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: So the next risk, uh, breast cancer, uh, MHT should be avoided in women with a personal history of breast cancer. We'll stop. Yeah. Um, and specifically, that's a personal history, not a family history. So women, especially with BRCA1 and BRCA2, who undergo risk-reducing surgery, they often are started on MHT following removal of their ovaries. So that's standard practice and it's safe. Uh, recommendation 13, due to increasing risk of breast cancer with duration of MHT, annual review of use is, recommendation, is recommended. Uh, continuation beyond five to seven years should be based on an individual woman's needs with regards to the benefits and risks of continuing so it's kind of saying that five years is kind of your target is using it less less than that time five to seven years should really be trying to weigh this up Um, but for the odd person you will need to go longer
1: and i guess we're thinking about using mht and the risk of breast cancer seems to be progesterone related rather than estrogen related although there does there is some uh, risk attributed to estrogen um, and it's also dose dependent so daily higher doses I have a higher risk than cyclical lower doses of progesterone um but I guess the other thing is is how individuals uh, perceive their own risk because the additional risk attributable to MHT for breast cancer and women who do not have a personal history of breast cancer is similar to the risks associated with sedentary lifestyle, obesity and alcohol consumption. And uh, I guess it's kind of easy to lay the blame on, on a medication. Um, We're actually in a fit and well woman who does not have a sedentary lifestyle, is not obese and does not drink, you know, more than the usual slash recommended amount of alcohol. Um, and who has troubling vasomotor symptoms, well, actually treating those and allowing her to keep living her fit, active, healthy life on balance may well be of benefit. Um, and so I think it's worth giving women uh, the this information and the ability to weigh up the risks and compare the risks themselves for what they perceive to be important.
0: Yeah. It's a real shame when people go without a uh, treatment that's effective because they've been scared off by something, or you know, worst yeah. worst case scenario, they've been scared off by a doctor who's <laughs> who
1: doesn't yeah. actually have you know the most current evidence yeah. in front of or, them, or suppose. just
0: hasn't picked their words carefully. But mm. um, yeah, it's going to be right for for some people. So the next recommendation. Scrolling down, so estrogen-only therapy is appropriate for women who have undergone hysterectomy. So these are some of the basics of MHT use. Uh, If there is an endometrium, it needs to be protected, and that's with a progesterone component. If that endometrium is gone with a hysterectomy, then you only need estrogen, and so presumably that's going to be basically a lower case, lower risk um, scenario in most cases. But having a hysterectomy is, or a hysterectomy for reducing that risk is not. No, a marine is pretty good for <laughs> yeah, reducing yeah,
1: that absolutely. risk. Um, what I found interesting here was that combined continuous MHT reduces the risk of endometrial cancer compared to untreated women, uh, but sequential MHT confers a slight increase in risk of endometrial cancer.
0: And I, the question I suppose is the timeline on that, because my understanding is that mm. usually sequential is generally used during the perimenopause, mm. so and it's usually only going to be over a fairly limited time period, maybe one to two years and then at that stage it's usually simpler and makes more sense to be on continuous so i don't i yeah i don't know what data that is from but most of the time it's from fairly low grade um data but it's of interest but again it w- probably wouldn't change anything about what i would do i would tend to go for continuous yeah um, or a as marina. a default yes <laughs> well, yes which a is my transdermal, which Beautiful. is yeah, yeah <laughs> which is continuous yeah not even telling <laughs> yeah. you what to do <laughs> um The next one, estrogen plus progesterone should be used for women with an intact uterus. So that's the reciprocal statement. Uh, Recommendation 16, the dose and duration of therapy should be consistent with treatment goals. The need for ongoing MHT should be reviewed regularly. So that's again, start low, go slow. If you're at a moderate to high dose, revisit it and yeah, And I think it's good to always kind of say, look, we're giving you this dose, but the next time we meet, or you know, in six to 12 months, the aim, you know, the dis- part of the discussion will be to try to reduce this dose. And I think that's good if you put that expectation in somebody's head. Because if they go away, this changes their life and everything's great. They're not going to be happy if they turn up a year later and you say, let's stop it or let's reduce it. They should know that the plan is to try to reduce it. And I think also, as long as, I think that's always going to be fine as long as you say, but to be honest, if you find everything's terrible you can always go back <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah yeah
0: it's just communication recommendation 17 for women with vaginal symptoms only local vaginal estrogen is the most suitable therapy so that's so cream in new zealand
1: and various other options wherever else you are in the world yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tablets, creams, and rings yeah, it's you nice like and simple it. here but we've hmm. got very few options
0: um and yeah it is kind of a wonder drug isn't it and it's really nice to think that it's very safe in general. So it, uh, it's a, there is systemic absorption, but it's very, very small. Um, and I have written down somewhere.
1: Well, there's been no evidence of an associated increase in risk of endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. It does not need to be opposed by progesterone, even in women with a uterus. Um, and I don't believe there's any increase in risk of DVT breast cancer Cardiovascular disease to the point, and it's not actually mentioned in this guideline. But my understanding was that even if woman her the woman herself has previously had breast cancer, if they have troubling genitourinary urinary symptoms, estrogen cream is a possibility to
0: use. Yeah, okay. So the the points I've got here are that uh, it's equivalent to one point one four milligrams of estradiol per annum, and um, that's with basically daily use of ovestin uh, and there is no increase of circulating estradiol uh, at twelve weeks. So presumably, after you've initially started using it, um, it, it settles down, and there's basically nothing observable as being, um, you know, increasing your estrogen exposure with use of ovestin or a topical mm. uh, estrogen.
1: And I mean, the guideline actually states that this data is based on short-term trials, one to two years. Uh, my experience so far has been that women who are menopausal, post-menopausal using this for urinary symptoms, particularly um, talking about issues around incontinence and atrophy, um, the the usage of this cream often is not just for the one to two years. It seems to be used.
0: Yeah, it's often used lifelong, and certainly anybody with a pessary should be generally using it lifelong. Yeah. Um, so... I think this is just a limitation of the information that's available. So we know it's safe for a few years. Uh, In practice, it's probably used commonly, uh, lifelong. Um, Hmm. There's no evidence that we're aware of to suggest that. That's not an appropriate use, but it's again just a limitation of what we know.
1: And that is actually recommendation eighteen. Sorry, I uh, jumped ahead there. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so that brings us on to recommendation nineteen: use of topical vaginal estrogen in women with a uterus does not require concomitant progesterone use. So it's the exception where you're giving you're giving estrogen here. You don't need to protect the endometrium um, with progesterone in this case. Again, that's because it's not systemically absorbed, and even though it's nearby, it's not going. to the endometrium and shouldn't have an effect on the endometrium
1: sorry i will just circle back to recommendation 18 it also states women using this therapy should be advised to consider intermittent withdrawal to review the need for ongoing therapy and so i guess that's something in women who aren't using it with a pessary um but equally a lot of women we use it twice a week rather than every night so even that would be reducing your estrogen exposure at that point
0: yeah I'd say most people probably just stop using things anyway, <laughs> eventually, <laughs> without a good reason. But I guess there'll, again, be exceptions. So if you do find, especially if somebody's been using a medication for 10 years and they don't know why, that would be a, obviously a good prompt to say, well, maybe you just try stop, you know, stop using it. Okay, so recommendation 20, uh, review use of MHT after six months with regular subsequent reviews to reassess the balance of risks and benefits for the individual. Okay. I think that's common sense. They're basically giving a timeline target of six months that often bring, I think probably brings you out to a year in the public sphere. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's a a chance to check for any adverse effects, check for any new vaginal bleeding, postmenopausal vaginal bleeding, and make sure mammograms, breast checks, smears are done when due as well.
0: Yeah. It says there is no set minimum or maximum duration of therapy, most guidelines recommend use for four to five years. Uh, cessation may lead to of, resurgence of symptoms in 50% of women, with no clear evidence on the optimum method of discontinuing HRT. So, oh, they've used HRT in the MHT wow. guideline. We've spotted a typo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think probably in general you'd probably try to taper it off, but much like steroids, you just make it up.
1: Yeah, have a plan, communicate, <laughs> yeah. and wean it back up, wean it down as
0: needed. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the next one, recommendation 21, jumps into – it's in the other hormones uh, section. Uh, they do mention testosterone brief- briefly, um, and it just says that it may be beneficial uh, for women with hypoactive sexual desire disorders. Though so this requires a full assessment that's kind of separate – uh, and testosterone should not be routinely added to MHT for the treatment of menopausal symptoms. Now, tibolone, uh, which is a synthetic steroid with estrogenic, progestogenic, and weak androgenic effects, uh, is effective for vasomotor and urogenital symptoms. Uh, and the primary recommendation of 21 is that it should only be used in a woman with more than twelve months since menopause, as it may cause irregular bleeding in younger women, so it's not suitable during the perimenopause or to have any but anybody who's yeah still having bleeding, and it's saying when it says twelve months since menopause i'm not sure if they mean
1: menopause being the last menstrual period
0: yeah, so they mean yeah once the death absolutely is there <laughs> and you're not having yeah periods anymore that's when it's appropriate to use. Um, and then some information about tablone and its use. Uh, it, I think it's also, yeah, so I think the testosterone component of it, um, there is some evidence that it improves libido, improves vaginal lubrication, and also has bone mineral density um, improvements. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have some risks. So like anything, it, doubles the risk of breast cancer recurrence but not de novo breast cancer so it doesn't increase your risk of getting breast cancer but of recurrence so it shouldn't be used evidence is not clear
1: for getting de novo breast cancer yeah
0: yeah it's not known to increase it at least so it shouldn't be used for survivors of breast cancer um and it also increases the risk of women who of, of having a stroke after the age of sixty-five. So there's a recommendation to avoid its use in women um, who are over sixty-three. Recommendation twenty-two refers to bioidentical hormones, and it's just saying that uh, bioidentical hormone therapies are not recommended as the composition is not standardised and efficacy and safety data is lacking. So this is talking about uh the types you get at a kind of vitamin and supplement store healthy
1: healthy natural (laughs) organic drugs essentially is what they are and i guess the conversation that we can be having with women is that you know it's the active ingredient is the same but when we give it to you in a medication form we know exactly what we're giving you we can titrate it to effect um and to side effect which is not the case in these bioidenticals. I mean, who knows? that? The unfortunate thing is, yeah, like I say, that it is a, the same active ingredient, but they're not regulated. And I guess that's the the key.
0: Yeah. All right, so recommendation 23 uh, is that paroxetine and fluoxetine should not be used in women taking tamoxifen as it may interfere with tamoxifen metabolism. Now, this kind of seems to come out of left field, and I think this is just because they've again amalgamated the tamoxifen and endometrium guideline Mm. into this
1: one that's grade a evidence-based recommendation there but it's sort of we need to take a step back um, and just talk about non-hormonal therapies but that's the only strong evidence-based non-hormonal therapy that they're giving us in in this guideline is that fair yeah Um, So there's lots of options for non-hormonal therapies for vasomotor symptoms. Things like CBT um, and hypnosis have actually been shown to reduce vasomotor symptoms. Other options like yoga, exercise, diet, uh, other supplements and other lifestyle changes, including weight loss, have not been shown to equivocally reduce um, vasomotor symptoms. But uh, they do have lots of other health benefits. Um, and so, I guess you'd be encouraged, but not um, given, you know, miracle cure status. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I have a very simple approach to these things. That as long as it's not costing you too much money mm, and it's, if it works for you, it's probably fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but there's just limitations taught me. No, and it's amazing how many patients just seem to rave about acupuncture as well. So I'm I'm all for that if they can afford it.
1: Well, there's something about an hour of self pampering
0: is yes. in there yeah.
1: regardless of how it is whether it's needles in your back or yeah. a, a massage I'll,
0: I'll put a plug in for getting a tattoo that's <laughs> yeah. a, that's its own form of acupuncture and just some time out so mm, exactly, I'm, exactly. That. I'm sure there's no evidence against it no
1: <laughs> no um, and then other over-the-counter complementary and alternative medications um we most commonly i guess hear about black cohosh and phytoestrogens have not been consistently shown to be effective for vasomotor symptoms um and then other non-hormonal but pharmacological medications um shown to be superior to placebo uh, include ssris snris and some other centrally acting medications such as gabapentin pregabalin and clonidine these trials are short-term um and longer-term data is lacking and i guess if we're looking at so these are um for vasomotor symptoms but if your woman is presenting with vasomotor symptoms and an element of anxiety or depression maybe this is the sort of a way, good way to start mm. as well um and then coming from that is again sort of we're back to recommendation 23 in that if um, women are taking tamoxifen we should not be adding in paroxetine or fluoxetine because it can interfere interfere sorry with tamoxifen metabolism yeah, so you can use
0: other ssris but mm. they uh, interfere with the conversion of tamoxifen into its active ingredient. And so it can have reduced uh, efficacy for its uh, intention, which is to prevent the recurrence of breast cancer. Uh,
1: and then there are a few, um, there's no recommendations that I can see there, but um, coming in under that is non-hormonal therapies for vaginal dryness. So we have briefly already touched on vaginal estrogen. Um, uh, there's, they mentioned lubricants and moisturizers. Uh, which have been shown to potentially reduce pain during sexual activity. Um, if, and these are in patients with breast cancer. So these are patients who, I guess, were not recommended to use or chose not to use vaginal estrogen. Um, so that's uh, yeah, particularly for vaginal dryness in, in the context of sexual activity. Uh, vaginal lidocaine also can assist um, in reducing pain during intercourse. And there's a a wee paragraph there on vaginal laser as well, uh, which at the moment is not offered, I don't think. Not in public. No.
0: I think it's available in private, but like many things, it's far too new to have any real sensible recommendation other than that it's used outside of clinical trials is not recommended, and that's the phrasing they use.
1: I guess it's a watch this space.
0: Yeah. So... After all the big things about recommendations, they have a new section which is management of menopausal symptoms after cancer. So, I think they've rolled in the MHT after breast cancer guideline, and then they've gone on to include advice about other forms of cancer. So, both uh, female genital tract cancers, which is in one table, and then they've got another table for some other common cancers. Um, In the last two years, there's been three large review articles uh, that have been published um, that I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, one was in Jog uh, published last year and another two um, that all have fairly, they kind of draw on similar evidence, but they interestingly have somewhat different conclusions. And, in the draft form of this guideline, they'd used the information from uh, one study, which had, I think, originated from um, some Australian authors. Um, And then it's been, in the kind of final version, uh, the table's kind of been amended and expanded uh, to kind of not make such uh, kind of, I guess, uh, bold recommendations. So what's nice is that it, does give you a kind of table of what information is available and in most cases there's very little Um, the what they do say is that it's not recommended for some forms of cancer and that it's acceptable uh for others but when you dive deeper into the information it's i do find it kind of difficult to understand exactly where they've gotten these recommendations from so I think for every person, it would be an individual basis, but the the most most of the data seems to be from breast cancer. So you avoid MHT and tamoxifen for breast cancer survivors. For all others, there is not clear evidence of harm um, from its use. You'd really have just just have to talk to that individual and work out what is the priority for them. But I think you wouldn't want to be scaring people off um, if this was going to be a useful. Uh, Treatment for the symptoms that are actually affecting their quality of life, Um, just because we don't know enough about it. Um, They do seem to have given a bit of an endorsement, so they've said uh, MHT use is acceptable for survivors of uh, cervical, SCC, and adenocarcinoma, as well as uh, some ovarian cancers, so the most common, the high-grade serous uh, and mucinous, uh, but they've said not recommended for low-grade serous or endometrioid. Uh, The endometrioid one makes some kind of sense uh, in that much like endometrial cancer, this is definitely a hormone receptive uh, cancer. But in all of these cases, you've got a cancer that's presumably been treated. And so you're talking about the risk of recurrence. Um, probably this use with any hormone responsive cancer that is being treated or is not, you know, they're not in remission, that's Different story. A different story. And it's probably not going to be the right thing to do. And hopefully, those conversations will be being had with an oncologist.
1: Mm. I think, yeah, all of these probably all of these conversations will be being had with an oncologist. It's reassuring to see limited data suggest no harm with estrogen therapy for women who've had ovarian cancer because these are women who will have had their ovaries removed and therefore more likely to suffer higher um, rates of vasomotor symptoms with surgical. More possibly surgical menopause. Um, yeah, and I did find it interesting that MHT may be considered with endometrial stage 1 and 2 cancer, but not endometroid ovarian cancer. Um, same as what you yeah. were saying there. But.
0: And to be clear, Ovestin, I think, is, is used very commonly for most, of the, all uh, at least female genital tract uh, cancers. Um, breast cancer, again, would be the one where you'd want to at least bring up the theoretical risks, though probably. It doesn't uh, increase risk of recurrence. Uh, But it's nice to know at least that that table exists, so you've got somewhere to go to for some information that you can start that discussion with. I think other things that just aren't covered in the guideline would be contraception in the context of menopause. So some basic rules would be that if menopause occurs less than uh, under 50 years, then contraception is needed for two years from the last uh, period. And over 50 it should be used for one year from the last period
1: and that perimenopause is a time of somewhat increased fertility (laughs) as the body is ramping up
0: yeah yeah and
1: guess it's ovulation is less predictable yeah i suppose the tragedy is it's
0: unlikely to result in a live birth but it'd been certainly nice if possible to avoid a miscarriage at Mm. age 50
1: Mm. or molar yes
0: All right. So as we approach the end of uh, this episode, please get back to us with any feedback about what you'd like to hear about, or especially if you think we've said anything wrong or that could be interpreted incorrectly, we're all ears and we'd be very happy to put corrections in the next episode and in the show notes.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening.